What's better than an all-day breakfast? Maybe we can have a long lunch. I would love a nice long lunch. I'll take a long lunch. This is Matt and Alex's Long Lunch. Hello, welcome to another Matt and Alex Long Lunch, where we grab a mimosa and uh, get stuck into a big conversation that we can't fit into a, yeah. uh, a normal everyday breakfast show, Matt O'Kine. And today, what an honour. Prime Minister Julia Gillard joined us for a uh, long half an hour chat. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's every now and then, you know, you pinch yourself uh, when you get to speak to such incredible people, you know, day in, day out. And uh, yeah, you get you get the nerves when someone like uh, Julia Gillard, ex Prime Minister, is is sitting on the other end of the. Uh, of the table and uh, sharing mm. oysters with you, uh, you know, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Um, but you know, we were on Zoom. But anyways, yeah, it's really <laughs> awesome to have had a long lunch with uh, with someone so so important in Australian history. Now, Matt O'Kine, what do you get when you uh, get the former Prime Minister of Australia and combine it with the first uh, finance minister from Nigeria and then those two people interview some of the biggest names in leadership, uh, such as Jacinta Ardern, Hillary Clinton, Theresa May, some women who have made it to the higher echelons of leadership. You would get a book called Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. It's by Julia Gillard and Ngozi Okonjo-Awela. And we're very, very lucky to have former Prime Minister Julia Gillard joining us on the podcast today. Hello, Julia. Hello. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on our show. We're so, so excited to have a chat. How how have the last uh, couple of weeks been for for you, Julia? Uh, I'm in Adelaide, so um, it's a lot easier over here. I went to Sydney around the time of the launch of my book and uh, coming back, there's a 14-day self-isolation period. So I was locked inside Uh, but this week I've been able to get out and about again, most particularly walking on the beach. So that's been lovely, bit of fresh air. Bit of sand between the toes. Very, very nice. That's exactly <laughs> right. Pretty cool down there this time of year, but still nice. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's get into it. The first question I want to ask you about, obviously there is a, a very big speech with plenty of views on YouTube that uh, many people have had have talked about over the years. I'm, of course, talking about the famous words you delivered right here. My dear remaining fellow Australians, the end of the world is coming. It wasn't Y2K. It wasn't even the carbon price. It turns out that the Mayan calendar was true. While Australia's best and brightest at the CSIRO have not been able to confirm this, I'm confident in Triple J's prediction that the world is about to end. Whether the final blow comes from flesh-eating zombies, demonic hell beasts, or from the total triumph of K-pop. If you know one thing about me, it is this. I will always fight for you to the very end. And at least this means I won't have to do Q&A again. Good luck to you all. (laughs) Julia, Julia, delivered in front of two Australian flags. (laughs) That, of course, uh, was when you were so kind and uh, did did a little promo for the Tom and Alex uh, Triple J breakfast show as it was the end of the Mayan calendar and the year. And uh, you got up and gave a speech. What are your memories of that time? I do remember giving that speech. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it, t- it took a few takes because of uh, basically laughing halfway through it, which is not the image that you want to go for when you're announcing the end of the world. Uh, the world didn't end and I have been back on Q&A. So here we are uh, facing some challenges, but certainly not global demise with the pandemic. <laughs> 
Well, I just wanted to personally thank you for doing that for us at the time because I thought it was so wonderful and I, and I still do. And it's something that personality in politics, you know, is almost a scary thing these days, people trying to do something a little bit different from the norm. Can you remember um, any criticism at the time or why you decided to uh, take the plunge and uh, do that for the, the national youth broadcaster? Well, you've got to do some things that are fun along the way. I mean, being prime minister is a very big, very serious job, uh, but behind the scenes, we always used to like to have a laugh and, I mean, with some of, one of the ways that you actually deal with the pressure of it is there's plenty of humour around with your closest team and your closest colleagues. So I think when your request came in, it caught people's <laughs> eyes and they thought it was, you know, amusing and it would be fun and why not? Um, obviously, some people were concerned that there would be an element that took it too seriously. So we had to make sure the wording was very clear so no one confused it with real life uh, hence <laughs> yeah. flesh-eating zombies and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, well, Julia, of course there is another speech that has been uh, been talked about a lot again recently off the back of uh, the release of your book, Women in Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, and that is uh, your speech regarding sexism and misogyny uh, in Parliament, and it sounds like this. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The Leader of the Opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the Leader of the Opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. Amazing, amazing words, Julia. First thing i got to ask, how annoying is it when people are, are yelling the punchline to, I mean, the, they're jumping in. I mean, you, you say, you're like, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Why are you jumping in here? I'm now wondering what would happen if someone did a creative cut between those two speeches. Uh, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't need emotion. Need. <laughs> he needs some flesh-eating zombies. That's what he needs. I think that is the mashup we need. I don't have the skill, but uh, a shout-out to whoever yeah. does to do their creative best. <laughs> but, um, but, I mean, that, that, that speech that we did just hear, it, it really um, has has become such a, a huge part of Australian political history and, uh, and you know, such a powerful moment. Um, in so many people's lives, and and you know, even even it's funny. We saw a um, an article that was published by the Guardian just a, a month or so ago about um, the fact that o Obama, Barack Obama's team used to watch it whenever they were annoyed with Tony Abbott. How does that feel <laughs> like when you know all the way across the world, uh, you know, this superpower team is there watching you kind of drill someone? Yeah. I knew from the time that President Obama had watched it because uh, he talked to me about that. So it got a lot of publicity in the United States and came to his attention that way. But it's only recently from Ben Rhodes' book that I uh, found out that they used to watch it and re-watch it in the context of dealing with Tony Abbott as Prime Minister. So I think there's something kind of heartwarming about that. And I am pleased that 
the speech has kind of got a continuing life and I think it has come to mean something for women and particularly young women who still know that they're going out to face a world in which they will be treated differently just because they're women and it's part of what gets them, you know, sort of up and motivated for that and particularly for driving change home and hopefully creating a gender equal world. Indeed. And, you know, obviously when you're at the um, the upper echelons of parliament, you're making broad sweeping changes to things and you sort of can look at graphs and hope things are going well. But often it's those personal stories which can really stick with you and show that change is being made. I've had women come up to me and tell me that they've watched it hundreds of times and it's what they do when they've experienced something at work or in, you know, an environment in which they have to go out and and deal with stuff uh, that has been sexist or misogynist and they've watched that speech to kind of give them uh, courage and energy as they go back in to deal with it. So that does make me feel very proud about it. Julia, I mean, I I wanted to ask you, I've just had a a daughter who is one and a half years old now, almost one and a half. And, you know, looking at your career and, and some of the words that, you, uh, that you've that you written in the book and some of the, the guidance and um, wisdom that you have about this topic, about being a woman and, and you know, wanting to be a, a, a leader, it, was, it shocked me to see how early some of the um, ideas within the book, some of the hypotheses are being pushed on women at such a young age already, you know? Um, for instance, it was, I've found it amazing that my daughter is one year old and people will still, you know, they'll, they'll see her and they'll say things like, oh, look at her, gee, she's going to be trouble, isn't she? She's going to be <laughs> She's going to be a feisty and, you know, all the, all the sort of language that, that revolves around strong women and, and the sort of negative connotations that are sort of used to try and put them down. And, and it happens so early on. How, how do you feel about, about that sort of language and how it's used against women, even from such a young age all the way up to, you know, when they're in positions of power? It happens ridiculously early on and it happens even when, as a parent, you're trying to create an environment in which it doesn't happen. And I do, um, in the book, uh, mention an incident in my own family. So uh, my great-niece, Isla, had been with her slightly older brother, Ethan, to his birthday party, and they'd gone to one of those, you know, kids' places where uh, the activities are kind of laid on. And I said to her, you know, what was it like? And she said, oh, those games, they were just for the boys. And I thought, no one would have said that to her. So, you know, I kind of worked it through with... You got out YouTube and you showed her a video where... (laughs) (laughs) I I got her in front of the computer and started reading the manuscript of the book. No, not quite. Uh, But I I did work it through with the family and it turned out, you know, you had to uh, be a certain height uh, kid to go on these um, games and she was, of a, you know, she's shorter, was too small. But you just think, wow, you know, it gets in there really easily. And I remember watching a, a mum and a daughter, and I record this in the book too, where the daughter with complete certainty was saying to her mother, but pink's for girls. And this frustrated mother was like, 
daddy's got a pink shirt. No, she wasn't having any of it. Pinks for girls. And you just knew that would never have been said to her in her family home. But kids are such sponges that the gendered biases in the environment around us tell and tell really early. And so one of the things that we sort of put in the book to think about is not only what you can do to create a space for your daughter in which she gets, you know, messages about she can be anything she wants to be. But as these impressions start to settle on her from the outside world, that you actually create time to talk them through with her so she doesn't get them in her head and start thinking, I can't be that loud or I can't be the one who organises the other kids because someone's going to call me Miss Bossy Boots. Uh, whereas if a boy was doing it, we'd all be sort of going, oh, he's a natural leader. Mm. He'll be one to watch for the future. Um, so there's a lot here as a message to all of us about how we interact with children. And then, of course, the book broadens out from those young days to what happens to women when they're out there in their career trying to make their way in the world. Absolutely. And it's still happening in 2020. We saw just in the last week or so uh, a congressman from America say to a young congresswoman, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, uh, call her a few choice words, including, um, well, uh, let's let Alexandra um, have a have her say here. This is what she said in the, the halls of Congress in America after uh, being confronted by a Republican congressman. About two days ago, I was walking up the steps of the Capitol when Representative Yoho accosted me on the steps right here in front of our nation's capital. Representative Yoho put his finger in my face. He called me disgusting. He called me crazy. He called me out of my mind. And in front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, a bitch. These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman the congresswoman that not only represents New York's 14th congressional district, but every congresswoman and every woman in this country. Because all of us have had to deal with this in some form, some way, some shape, at some point in our lives. When I was reflecting on this, I honestly thought that I was just gonna pack it up and go home. It's just another day, right? But then yesterday, Representative Yoho decided to come to the floor of the House of Representatives and make excuses for his behavior. And that I could not let go. I could not allow my nieces, I could not allow the little girls that I go home to, I could not allow victims of verbal abuse and worse to see that and to see our Congress accept it as legitimate because I have to show my parents that I am their daughter and that they did not raise me to accept abuse from men. It was an incredibly powerful speech. I was really moved by it. I was wondering, Julie, if you heard it and watched the whole thing and what your thoughts were. I did watch the whole thing and I thought it was a remarkable speech. And amongst the many things she did so well, she debunked. Uh, that congressman using as a defence, you know, what me, I can't be a sexist man because I've got a wife, I've got daughters. And she really powerfully makes the point that 
you know, that's not a get out of, you know, jail card and that if um, every man on the planet who had a wife or had daughters was a man who never did anything sexist, then I wouldn't be writing books like Women and Leadership with my <laughs> colleague, uh, Dr Ngozi Okonjari wheeler and we wouldn't be having this conversation now because, you know, job done, the whole thing would be fixed. Mm. Uh, and she does that in the context of, you know, very strongly saying, and I'm someone's daughter too. And, of course, you know, that's absolutely right and hopefully not only makes that congressman think but makes men and women think generally about how hurtful and excluding that sort of abuse is. Yeah, amazing stuff. Um, Julia, in the book, Women in Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, you speak to uh, and reference a lot of um, really powerful women in uh, not in politics and leadership leadership positions around the world. People like Jacinda Ardern, Theresa May, uh, Joyce Banda, Hillary Clinton, among many others. Was there anyone that really surprised you that that that, that really stood out as as a as an incredible source of inspiration or someone that, that was almost you weren't expecting to connect with so much? I wasn't expecting to connect with Erna Solberg from Norway quite as much as we did. Um, and I'd met her before. She's been a global champion for education. And because I chair uh, the Global Partnership for Education, I had dealt with her before. Uh, but I hadn't expected her to be quite so frank and forthright about how she sees all of this. She's a political conservative, not from my side of politics, um, but, you know, she was really keen to talk about gender and leadership very frankly. So when we met with her, Ngozi and I, uh, the first thing she said when she sat down was, uh, my media advisor has explained to me what resting bitch face is. And now I, I try and smile more. And so we could start at that point um, about uh, resting bitch face and how people <laughs> see women leaders. And, of course, uh, this knits into a whole lot of psychological research that people um, are disproportionately likely to look at a commanding woman and to say that she's unlikable because we've all got gender stereotypes whispering in the back of our brains and when we see a commanding woman, we think she's not acting as we expect women to act and consequently she's probably not a very nurturing, empathetic sort of person. And so she put that really, you know, boldly. And she also was very prepared to talk about appearance questions. She's a bigger built person. Um, very happy to have a conversation about that, very happy to have a conversation about what that has meant in terms of how she's reported in Norway. And so we had a really frank conversation about, you know, women being in the public eye, body types and what that means people conclude about you. So she was very different than what I thought. And Theresa May I had not met before, but she was also um, different from... Uh, what I was expecting. Uh, she's often characterised as a very reserved person, but I found her very frank and very prepared to have an honest discussion about some of the hurdles she faced. 
Yeah, incredible. One of the in, um, other incredible things I found from the book was uh, you managed to team up with Dr. Ngozi Okongo-Uwela and actually write the book because usually when I run into people and you have a connection, you go, oh, we should do a podcast sometime <laughs> or we should do this sometime. <laughs> Never gets done. Here you are releasing this incredible book with all of these interviews with someone who obviously you've met in your travels uh, through the, you know, uh, through the world. How did it actually, you get down and knuckle down and actually do it? <laughs> Well, that, that's a good question because at a superficial level, this was just, you know, dead set crazy, like two incredibly <laughs> busy women on the sides of international <laughs> meetings have these conversations about, oh, can't believe what's happening to, you know, women leaders. Oh, I can't believe Hillary lost. Oh, we should do something about this. Let's write a book. Um, so it, it was at that level kind of an odd thing to commit to, uh, but we said we'd do it. The first thing we did was we wrote a concept note to kind of distill these ideas that we wanted to look at the global research base. We wanted to take that research to women uh, who are leaders and ask them, is this true in your real life? So we distilled all of that down. But the great thing that happens when you're doing a book as opposed to a podcast is you then submit that to a publisher. And if they say yes, then there's an editor <laughs> who comes <laughs> and sets deadlines for you when you were supposed to have the manuscript at a certain stage and a bit, you know, uh, uh, Meredith, our editor, uh, managed to combine uh, coach, friend, supporter with a bit of school teacher and you haven't handed in your homework <laughs> and you give that sufficient proportions that we ultimately wanted to deliver. Wonderful. Amazing stuff. Well, uh, we're so glad that you did deliver it. Um, and we, I, we've spoken a lot about uh, women and leadership and, and, and you know, your time as uh, Prime Minister and, and one of the uh, great figures of Australian political history but I want to know about the, the, the who is Julia Gillard, okay? Who is <laughs> Julia Gillard? So Forget any of the other personality tests you've ever done, yeah. Julia. Matt O'Kine <laughs> is going to get to the core of your being These right are now. the important Okay, questions. I had to wait till this stage of my life to get to the absolute essence. Here we go. Okay. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> so I've got, a, I've got a couple of tough, tough, you know, a few curveballs to throw at you. Let's just, I just want to okay, know who... Who we're really talking to here, okay? <clears throat> Julia Gillard. Favourite chip flavour? Favourite chip flavour? Uh, I've been currently doing a big line uh, in honey soy chicken, it's called. <laughs> yes, that's, okay. That's probably going to give away well. the brand because there's probably only <laughs> one brand. Well. That has uh, one yes, it's a large flavor. stone, I imagine. But, anyways, <laughs> um, uh, favourite band? Oh look, I'm an I'm an old person, so I am by definition. <laughs> oh, Julia, no. <laughs> I am by back then, Julia. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I am by definition a dag, a sort of you know 1970s, 1980s dag. So you know I'm kind of back in the cold chisel Bruce Spring. Oh. Yeah, kind of Springsteen, love Bruce. It. Love a bit of Bruce Springsteen myself. Born to Run, absolutely uh, Born to run. amazing. <laughs> Thunder Road, oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> all right, what's on the uh, what's on the cocktail menu? Favorite cocktail? I'm more of a wine drinker than oh, a cocktail drinker, but I have learned in my later years to appreciate a martini. 
And when I'm in London for the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, where we work incredibly hard, incredibly hard, <laughs> uh, we uh, do from time to time escape for the occasional cocktail. And there's all sorts of um, little twists and, you know, extra flavours that you can try. Amazing. And, and uh, what about who? who is your secret uh, Liberal Party bestie? Because I know it's like sports teams, you know, you're all at war with each other on the field. And I know when you get off the field in the locker rooms, you're all chats and have drinks and stuff. Who's your who's your little, who's your bestie? Oh, look, uh, I don't know if you're going to say this is good enough because he's no longer in politics, but I'd say Malcolm Turnbull. Oh, so I walked past him at the in the park the other day. Didn't well, there you go. You next, next time you pass him, you can say, have you rung Julia lately? <laughs> there, there you go. Well, um, I might hijack it back now, Julia, and get back to politics. Oh, Speaking of, of the Liberal sorry. Party, I mean, because um, I ran at the last election, Julia Gillard, in the seat of one and against Dan Tehan. And look, he won and here I am interviewing you. Joke's on him. But um, I was wondering, you know, I haven't voted in an election in which a prime minister's gone a full term. Um, you yourself, uh, when you took the leadership from Kevin Rudd and then it went back and, you know, that's that's part of the reason. How how do you feel now looking back at it with this incredible run of dominoes that we've had up until this point? What, how do you feel about that? Yeah, look, I, um, you know, people are going to have a variety of views about all of that. I do think that possibly too much of that has been analysed through the prism of, personality and not enough analysed through the big political trends, I think, fed into it. And globally, you know, what we're seeing in democracies everywhere is a kind of fractiousness. Um, I think that there's a lot to be thoughtful about in terms of the age we're living in and how we renew democracies and strengthen them because people have been mostly pretty grumpy with their governments, pretty fractious, uh, prepared to lash out in various directions. And I think that's manifested in different ways in different places. So if you looked at the UK, you'd say that's what Brexit was about. If you looked at the US, I think it fed into the election of Donald Trump. Uh, Here, I think it fed into an ever quickening cycle around leadership. Um, and I think, in you know, in some ways, leadership's been a long-term meta-story of Australian politics. You know, Keating against Hawke, would Will Costello run was one of the most reported stories mm-hmm. during all of the Howard years. Uh, what what changed was the sort of speed, you know, the cycle, and mm-hmm. it sped up the way so much else about politics has sped up. Uh, and so, you know. At, one level I would like us to get the conversation into some deeper terrain because here, just like around the the rest of the world, I think there's a lot to do to make sure our democracy is as strong and as vibrant as it can be for the future. For sure. And um, just just finally, the Liberal Coalition with the Nationals have been in the last 24 years, have been in power for 18 of them and uh, your former party, the Labor Party, were in for six What do you put that down to? Oh, I think it's a harder row to hoe uh, for progressive governments in Australia. I think it is um, just objectively uh, harder to get the 
uh, nation to turn to a major cycle of change. I think it's harder in terms of the media environment and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously we've got a diversifying media environment now with new technology, but um, over a very long haul and still uh, the concentration of media in the sort of Murdoch empire, I think, has had a particular um, a particular impact on Australian politics and not one in favour of the Labor Party. A few of those photoshops were pretty, <laughs> i tell you what, were pretty <laughs> ridiculous at the time. You look at it and you think, is this some article to, you know, parody, <laughs> you know, media bias? Yeah. It's, uh, so there's really all of that. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it, it feeds in uh, to how we think about our government and what we're prepared to respond to. Having said that, I do think that uh, Labor in government, whether it's the government I led, the government Kevin led, uh, the Hawke and Keating governments, uh, can all point to uh, major changes that we've brought for the nation that have made us a better place and have endured even if the government has not. Well, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, the, cu- the current political state in Australia, facing situations that, dare say, not many governments have ever faced in, in this country. Um, I mean, I'm so intrigued to know from your perspective, but having been in that position, you know, the, in, in the prime ministership position, what does, for these ministers and Scott Morrison, what does their day look like in a situation like this? And do like how do you sleep in these moments? What what do you when do you actually take time to have meals? Where are they eating? What's going through their head? And also, what what situation did you? What was the most high pressure situation that you faced during your tenure as uh, prime minister? Well, I was of course deputy prime minister during the global financial crisis. Kevin was prime minister, so I think in terms of the urgency and immediacy. That's probably the, the best comparison in contemporary times. And, you know, I'm, I'm not following Scott Morrison around all day, every day. Um, I'm, <laughs> sure, uh, I'm sure there would be complaints from our uh, security people if I suddenly <laughs> loomed back behind him wherever he went. Uh, but what I would imagine uh, is that uh, like us in those times, there is a rhythm to the day which would um, start with uh, early morning briefings about, you know, up to the minute, what happened yesterday, where are we today? And in this pandemic, that would obviously uh, include what's happening with case numbers and outbreaks of the virus and the like. Uh, and then you have all of the decision-making processes. He, of course, has got this national cabinet structure, but he would have his own cabinet as well and subcommittees of that cabinet uh, that would be meeting very intensively, uh, trying to respond in the moment to what needs to happen next. And to get ready for all of those meetings and engagements, there would be, you know, volumes and volumes and volumes of paperwork. And, you know, the one thing that you never see in political dramas um, because it wouldn't make very good a viewing, is, you know, a whole lot of politics is about sitting at a desk, at task, by yourself, uh, reading, absorbing, getting across issues. Uh, no one's ever going to make a movie out of it because, you know, <laughs> is, is the Prime Minister sitting at, at her desk, you know, at 7am uh, in the morning? Here she is still sitting at it at 7pm at night. No one's going to watch that. Uh, but oh, man, that's what yeah, happened. the telly movie. That is wow. what happened. 
Goodness me. Well, Julie Gard, thank you so much for talking to us on All Day Breakfast. We could talk to you forever. You're always a delight and really impressed with the book as well, Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, written in conjunction with Ngozi okonjo Uh Thank you very much for joining us here on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Julia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's it. The All Day Breakfast kitchen is closed. All the links are at mattandalex.com.au.